0: There is a drug that is proving to be of miraculous impact. And when I say miracle, I do not use that term lightly. And I don't want to be sensationalized when I say that. That is a scientific recommendation based on mountains of data that has emerged in the last three months.
1: Ivermectin.
0: Ivermectin.
1: Ivermectin.
0: You have to understand something about ivermectin. 3.7 billion doses have been administered since it was first developed in 1987. 3.7 billion. Something like over 60% of sub-Saharan Africa takes it on a yearly basis. It has an unparalleled safety profile. When they pair it with with anti-vax, oh, it's like a one-two punch. Yeah, you're gone. You really are gone. Anti-vax, horse dewormer advocates. And and you're just... Done. You are not a horse. You are not a cow, warned the Food and Drug Administration in a tweet this week. It has already won the Nobel Prize in Medicine in 2015 for its impacts on global health in the eradication of parasitic diseases. And what happened is they got to Andy oh, and they turned him. We are a group of some of the most highly published physicians in the world. We have near 2,000 peer reviewed publications among us. I had never seen so much data in support of a medicine. We have contributed more to the medical knowledge of our specialty in our careers than, than anyone else can claim as a group. <laughs>
1: I just kind of want to get a feel for February, March, before this thing, you know, you're sitting on your couch, you've done your day's work, and this thing breaks. What's your what's your response?
0: Yeah, so so first of all, when this thing was breaking, um, I was the chief of the critical care service and the medical director of the main. Uh, medical surgical intensive care unit at the University of Wisconsin, which is one of the big ivory towers here. It gets massive amounts of research funding. And so I'm at a big academic medical center. And as it was breaking, it was interesting. I still remember like my chief and my chair and the heads, they were like, oh, it's not going to come here. It's just Wuhan. And within a week, suddenly it was like, everybody was manning the battle stations because we saw it hit Lombardy, then it hit Seattle, then it hit New York. And so there was these, and I'm from New York city. Um, I know the director or at least a couple of these specialists in every ICU in New York city, they're either trainees of mine, or I trained with them or they trained me. Um, and so, as we were preparing in Wisconsin for this onslaught that we were seeing hitting other places. Now remember we're in the middle of the country in Wisconsin. Mm. We were very delayed until when we got patients, it was literally weeks. So we spent all our time preparing kind of disaster response, like worst case scenarios. We were building out ICU rooms so we could expand out. We were working on these disaster schedules where like, if some of the intensivists, which would I have, if we went down, who would take over? And actually they were putting us in the rear guard overseeing other physicians that we were putting into frontline role. It was was a fascinating time and it was all consuming. Um, But at the same time, I was like talking to doctors. So I'm talking like very medically, right? So it's interesting what you were saying, how you got interested, you started to look at data. I call that the rabbit hole, right? We all, some of us, it doesn't have to be doctors. In fact, if anything, I have a rich network of non-physicians who fell into rabbit holes, inquisitive Mm -hmm. people with high intelligence, knowledge of data, and knowing that the answer is in the data wherever you can find it. Mm -hmm. We all started investigating certain things. And so like my first few months was just really how to prepare the hospital and the teams to deal with these patients, you know? And I still remember thinking like, It wasn't like a humorous thought, but I was like, this is interesting. The world is being enveloped in a pulmonary and critical care disease. And I happen to be a pulmonary and critical care specialist kind of at the peak of my career, you know, and I was like, this is an interesting time for me. You know, I sort of attacked it head on. Um, But another thing I want to say in listening to what you said is So I've been transformed by so much in the last two years, like knowledge of things beyond medicine, how things work. And we'll talk about, but like the depth of corruption, the depth of all of these sinister things, this miss, the hiding of data, the mischaracterization data, you know, for that noble lie, right. To get everyone vaccinated. Mm. So what I've thought before is those first few months, all the craziness that they didn't like, I'm willing to forgive that. Right, because that was the fog of war, or so I thought. Right, like I'm willing to forgive those drastic measures that we all did, presumably for our safety, to try to control that. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. And even the rapid launch of the vaccines, I'm kind of willing to forgive that in the mm. beginning. Um, but I have to say, knowing what I know now, and having read Bobby Kennedy's book, have you read that book? The the real uh, no,
1: I, I have it. I know it's a commitment, so
0: it's a commitment, but yeah. When you learn about the last five years and the simulation exercises conducted with multinational organizations, uh, governments, uh, where they actually simulated a viral pandemic, and they had put in place plans of how to respond. And when you see what they did in the beginning, that was all in the playbook that they developed. But I got to tell you, that playbook was flawed. Like the massive lockdowns, they knew. Like there's evidence to show lockdowns don't work. Yet what happened? The whole world went into lockdown. They all read these memos, and they. So like, when I say that I was forgiving of the initial response, the more I learn now, like I'm very confused as to what to believe and what's sinister and what is a benign intent.
1: Yeah, you, know you see. Oh, well, I told. I, I mean, I completely. I mean, um, and and in some ways. I think if we turned off the record button, we'd talk for hours about the yes. sinister level, that it, it is apparent. You can't unsee it. But even if you just stick to the simplicity of the data, like I had I had a, a podcast with a, with an engineer um, called Ivor Cummins back in, I think it was my interest just, I just kept going. I was going, what are you talking about? I like to look, if there's something, if, you know, I said this before, there's a buggy under the bed. I say to my kids, let's have a look. I know it's hard. Let's just have a look under the bed, you know, and once you see it's not there, you can still imagine it might be there. So I like to look and see. And so the more and more, so Ivor Cummins is um, an engineer and he suddenly just got trapped by the data and he got all consumed by it. And he went looking at, at the science of lockdowns. He didn't talk about vaccines. He didn't talk about anything else, just purely the science of lockdowns, do they work or do they not work? And what's the overall implication? And he had gathered 40 papers from credible universities around the world to show that they did not work. And so he was shouting and roaring about it. Of course, then the campaign, you know, he got so much abuse, but it was, again, it was in the data, you know, was it there? There it was clear as day, you know.
0: But here's the thing. So one of the things that I've screamed about since the beginning is I see policies divorced from science. And so I mm. use the term, these are non-scientific objectives, or to put it another way, these are policies that are not supported by science. Mm. And so when you see the divorcement from the, the data, the divorce of the data and what they're doing, it's, it you know, I kept scratching my head. And let me give you a couple of examples. So I got to tell you a key thing about what you just said about lockdowns. One of the first rabbit holes I fell into, and I've been in many, was in April of 2020, I was having a conversation with my main mentor in medicine. And we were both, uh, at that time, we were both in New York because I, I had left the university, we could talk about why. Um, and I went to help New York because New York was sending out emails to all specialists, please come to New York now, they're in such dire straits. And so I went back to my old hospital in ICU and he and I were talking and he said, you know, this disease is clearly what we call airborne or other people call aerosol transmitted, Um, which it's not large droplet, it's not hand to mouth or finger. It was clearly aerosol transmitted. And he said, you know, we need N95s for this. And and so I started to look into aerosols and this is what I found very quickly. I wrote an op-ed, which is interesting. It got accepted by the New York Times. Um, And I wrote an op-ed arguing that this disease is aerosol transfer. Because you remember in the beginning, it was either large droplet. That's what the safe, uh, the the six foot was from. And then the the massive hand washing is because direct contact. But really was clearly aerosol. And knowing what we know about these aerosols and the virus, the only thing that was going to afford some protection with, you know, some limitations was an N95. So I literally wrote an op-ed called N95s for All. And I was Mm -hmm. calling on what we call a Marshall Plan in the United States, which is literally the government would have to commandeer some manufacturing industry to produce N95s for the citizens. Mm -hmm. And that op-ed was accepted by the New York Times. That same week that it got accepted, the New York Times published an op-ed by a Senator Tom Cotton, who is very kind of a right-wing guy in our country, who called for the military to come into the streets to put down the Black Lives Matter protests, that editorial that they published caused a revolt in the New York Times staff because it was so incendiary, and they fired the op-ed editors. <laughs> and so, and the op-ed editors who were holding my op-ed, they got fired, and the new guys they stopped publishing all the op because it was like a lot of reaction stuff. So right. I didn't get published there. I got published in a major newspaper a couple of uh, months later. But the key point is this. The arguments I was making that this was aerosol transmitted and the entire world needed to understand that, that this was contracted by breathing in shared air with someone else. The CDC here and the WHO refused to recognize it as an aerosol. They would not say that it was aerosol transmission and a group of 273 scientists wrote an open letter to the New York Times in like July, right around when my op-ed was published, saying this is clearly aerosol transmission. And yet, for a whole year plus, the CDC refused to recognize it as such, and the WHO even longer. Both organizations now say it was aerosol. But when I saw what was happening in the early parts, I literally was like screaming at the world, how come no one's understanding that this is aerosol transmission? And so the science behind aerosol was so strong and so obvious. And yet it takes these massive organizations with competing interests were are politically functioning like – Like when you see how these massive organizations where their committees work, and also WHO, if the WHO comes out and tells the entire world that it's aerosol transmission and you need an N95, and you have all these poor and low middle income countries, and there were clearly not N95s from the world, that's more like a political decision than a scientific one. So it gets really complex. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And, And same thing in the US. I mean, if they told everyone that you needed an N95, they would scare the heck out of the entire population, right? Yeah. And there'll be a massive run on N95s. And so, but the, the point is like, that was the first time where I was like, they're not following the science and why not? And then the second one, and this was, this was actually a corrupt act. Now we know this was corrupt, but early on when everyone started focusing on hydroxychloroquine, and it was starting to be used. Everybody's looking at the pharmacies for it in the US. I don't know if the same thing happened in Ireland, um, but, you know, we knew that there was some really good suggestive data from the prior pandemics that it would work. We knew some of the mechanisms and doctors started talking about how they were doing well with hydroxychloroquine. Yes. Suddenly in this country, the United States government made a restriction that hydroxychloroquine could only be used in the hospital so they restricted it to the hospital and on the day that happened this is what I, my first thoughts were i was like well that's really stupid i thought it was stupidity mm-hmm. <laughs> literally i thought the diagnosis was stupidity because i was like they're restricting an antiviral to the hospital phase when the viral replication is over and we all know oral antivirals can only work in the first couple of days of a mm. viral illness if you're going to make a, an impact clinically. And I was like, why are they doing something so stupid? That's exactly the wrong decision. They should restrict it to the outpatients, mm. not the inpatients. I've since learned, and it's very well characterized in the book by Bobby Kennedy, but that was a corrupt action. They, that, that is actually a concerted effort to suppress evidence of efficacy of hydrogen. They wanted to put it in the phase where they could show it didn't work and then they could claim that it doesn't work.
1: Uh, You see, from the perspective in Ireland, it was um, Donald Trump mentioned it and then it was laughed about. You're
0: absolutely right. That was the other aspect. What you yeah. know, he's such a polarizing figure politically, and, when, yeah. and he says so many idiotic things. Yeah, but like when he when he talked about a medicine, like immediately that that also imploded the the, the hydrate. But you're absolutely right. That is another key aspect. But but on this topic of like doing non scientific things or things that weren't supported by science, like I, I was starting to get alarmed.
1: Like yeah, suddenly, really a, yeah, suddenly. Yeah, suddenly it just seemed the voice the voices in this were all political as opposed to anything else it was a political financial financial. well yeah
0: the 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 influences of the pharmaceutical industry and these actions by our healthcare agencies are now well described and vast um it's it's really and that's the thing that i found has transformed like what i say is like yeah i mean i i'm a well-read guy i've read novels and i've read you know the big novelists and thinkers i mean I get that there's corruption, right? I mean, yes, I get that money is, you know, yeah. influencing and influence. You know, I get that. I always thought it was there, but like a little bit contained, you know. <laughs> like- yeah,
1: it was over there, and it's yeah. <laughs> they're just doing their thing that they always have done since the beginning of time. But suddenly, it's on your doorstep.
0: Well, it's on I mean, your I mean, kid's I mean,
1: face, you know. A
0: small number of bad actors that yes can do some underhanded stuff. But I hope I'm not overstating this, but what I found was like the entire system, the health agency system here is literally controlled by and written by the pharmaceutical companies. Like if you look at the pandemic, every policy around a therapeutic or a vaccine, and you look at how it was written, I ask people to to follow this exercise. Ask yourself, if you were to give the policy to a pharmaceutical company and have them write it, what would they write? Now look at this policy. Everything is about more vaccines for ever younger. They wanna vaccinate the naturally immune. Um, the policies around these low cost generic drugs that we know work, when they restrict them, they send out, like literally you can see the pharmaceutical industry writing and controlling the, the actions of the ages. And it's total, it's total in this pandemic. I think it's yeah. been endemic and, and repetitive in history but here to the extent over. and to you extent- know
1: yeah if you were looking um it's a total aside yeah. um jesus man we could just talk so much like there's just like you just take a quick aside of Dope sick you know the show with michael keaton just for the average person going and they they watch something like that and they they will say something like god they're very corrupt but yeah. that's sorted now and it and it's like that happened and it made no difference to this juggernaut.
0: My, my guess at what the social media outlets, and in particular it's Facebook, um, is that they want to cut down on misinformation, right? Which is many doctors are out there claiming X, Y, and Z work in this disease. The challenge is you're also silencing those of us who are expert, reasoned, researched, and, and extremely knowledgeable. So, so Frank, here's the other thing, right? So when I read the book um, by Bobby Kennedy, the last few chapters talk about these simulation exercises and what their conclusions were and how they were ready for this pandemic. And one of them, these are the most terrifying ones, is they well-recognized that since all of the exercises were centered around a mass vaccination policy, They knew that a major issue they had to solve in the pandemic was vaccine hesitancy and misinformation around vaccines. They knew that they had to control the message in in order to encourage mass vaccination. And they're literally, if you read between the lines, they were ready to do mass propaganda. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, the extent to the the toxicity of these vaccines, I don't know if they knew they were actually going to propagandize like one of the most toxic medical interventions in mankind, I think when they wrote those, this is me being, I'm still trying to be fair. And um, yeah, I'm trying to be optimistic that I presume that those vaccines that they wanted to launch, they felt would have been safe and effective. So let's just give them that, although I don't really want to give them that, Um, but let's give them that. But the point is they knew, even if it's safe and effective vaccine, that there's a lot of hesitancy around the world. And they Mm. literally knew that they had to employ major media coordination In order to make that happen, and then I don't know if you know this, but in the past week, it was discovered that the Department of Health and Human Services, which which is all three agencies here, we have the CDC, the NIH, and the FDA, they gave a billion dollars to media outlets throughout the country.
1: I think I read that today. Yeah,
0: to control and propagate information to support vaccines. So, like. You almost can't sleep at night, the things that are coming out, like literally a billion dollars to control the media message around vaccines.
1: And it it was, I I can see, like you say, let's give it to people, uh, give it to journalists that they thought these these anti-vaxxers, because that's what they were called, would destroy the rollout and end up killing people. Let's just imagine that that is what they, and that for the greater good, because they had an idea of what the greater good is,
0: and, and the, because the questioning is viewed as we can't have that hesitancy. We can't have those people who are questioning or resistant because everybody needs. And I think maybe some of those who participated really believed that that that's yeah. actually it was a no. Like we have to do for you what you can't do for yourself All you and your questions are harming you. So yeah. it's, it's like right. it's called the noble lie. Right. And so, yeah, um, right. it was, it's
1: like a child and the parent. look, right. we know what's best for you. You have no clue. And we we know.
0: So the vaccines roll out and some of my colleagues, really good internists, um, you know, uh, primary care practitioners, they immediately, when they see their patients about the vaccine, they started sending antibodies to look for natural immunity. And if they had natural immunity, if they had a history of COVID, they had the antibodies, they would be like, you don't need a vaccine. And almost immediately the FDA put on their website that do not check exposure status or antibodies prior to vaccination. See, and, and when I saw that, that was the other thing I was yeah. like, now, wait a second. They're literally telling the nation's physicians to not look for natural immunity. And that's when I knew that something was really wrong. Cause I was like, they're doing that because if you remove the market size of the naturally immune from the jab, you're literally losing a huge proportion of market share of vaccine recipients. And and I knew that was a corrupt action. Like the naturally immune ignoring, that one is indefensible.
1: I had it. So I was kind of going, okay. And I remember I spoke to a doctor who said something like, well, you're good to go now, you're fine. Now, somehow six months later, he kind of changed that view and it, it was at the point where suddenly it wasn't possible to have a conversation. Um, but I I just couldn't get my head around that if you were to ever just be kind of logical, you go, OK, well, there's people who've got it in an extreme way, a less extreme way. And, da, 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 and more than likely, a gazillion kids have got it and they just had a headache and, you know, they haven't been tested. So why on earth? like I myself and my wife were just kind of going, when it all ramped up and ramped up and ramped up, and we were kind of even almost trying to explain to friends and family because everybody we knew practically got it we were kind of saying well we had it and my wife went and got her own independent antibody test to go look you know i have antibodies here and they're pretty high so uh, but it was just it was just simply illogical to not illogical. to not go and test if you care about who you're treating and you you go well okay do they need it or not But all of that had just gone. All of that idea had even gone.
0: So important what you just said is your experience with your doctor. Mm -hmm. The first time you met your doctor, he or she said, yeah, you're good to go. And then six months later, either they were too scared to not advise a vaccine or more likely is that they were propagandized into this strange notions because Mm -hmm. the other lesson I've learned is this because I've seen nothing but propaganda, the stuff that's in the media and even coming out of agencies is so clearly false. Um, I thought doctors would be immune or relatively immune because they, I thought they're trained to critically think and analyze data one of the misestimations that's buried in that is actually doctors don't read as much as I think they do. Um, They really don't read and keep up. They might do it in their narrow corner of medicine um, or they're just too busy to keep up. But generally they're not reading enough. And so they will take their messages freely and very quickly from agencies. And when you have captured agencies delivering bad information that you're surrounded by in the media, many doctors started behaving very oddly. They started doing things that literally violated tenets of medicine like this. So for instance, I, I, the most, one of the more alarming things I heard is I saw a patient yesterday um, uh, for a long haul syndrome. She's a pharmacist. And she told me that in the last few weeks or months, patients who come in for COVID, when, when they survive and get discharged, the hospitalists are vaccinating them upon discharge and that's when i'm like they and so i use this term they've lost their and i usually put in an expletive they've lost their minds mm-hmm. and i don't blame them it's been they've only lost their minds it's that's what's happened when you have global propaganda and censorship and it has been global
1: yeah it has yeah. the
0: messages have hit every country the censorship has hit every country the distortion of the science that you know when they attack repurposed drugs which i want to talk about in a second because that's where my life you know i suddenly found myself in this war on repurposed drugs yeah but it 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 has been scary because when i look at history right we know there's been societies and countries with totalitarian regimes who controlled the state media and everything and they were able to infect their populations with strange ideas that became mass formation psychosis and all that. But those have been discrete countries at different periods in history. Never, and this is what I think about, like this history is almost, I don't even know how to write this book. You literally had an entire world infected with propaganda and censorship. And you saw the strangest of behaviors break out in places you never thought they would break out. When you look at Australia and Canada, the way they've behaved, I mean, they they were like, I mean, the U.S. We have our problems, but we also had a good portion of the U.S. Which was like, kind of like, screw you. <laughs> oh God, you. <laughs> it just like, give you know, it Australian. would give you
1: great, you know. When you're sitting. I was saying to my wife, we're moving to Texas, and she was going, yeah, but well, you're not going to be able to get into Texas. But you, I'm looking at and hearing about Texas, and I'm going, and is it the leader of South Dakota? All these people, I was kind of going, oh God, you know that's why you know all those years ago there was a men you know there was a constitution put together and all these people who had lived in the world lived and known what it took to get they didn't really want to form a state but they probably looked at it from a practical perspective to say look let's get together but only if we agree x y and z and number 1 is I gotta be able to say what I want. Anybody stops that, it's over.
0: I thought those principles and those beliefs and freedoms like that <clears throat> were built into the fabric of our society as Americans or any other, you know, advanced democracy and, and, and that we'd learn from history, right? All of the horrors in history that occurred around propaganda and censorship, and how easily it got forgotten. So you mentioned the trucker convoy. I've been there, I you know, I was there at the launch, I gave some speeches. And then I was just there for the last four days in Maryland. then we sat down with some senators yesterday. Um, mm-hmm. I was a couple of, it was a couple of physicians and then the main trucker organizers. And, and it's so interesting because when we get together and we kind of, we, when we speak and when we organize, or we're, we're together. But the interesting thing is, and I love when the truckers say this, they, they like that we're there to bring the science about the policy. Because I always say, listen, I'm here because these mandates that they're fighting against they've used science to propagate these mandates. And I just have to tell you, the science isn't there for these mandates and then we'll go through the science. But the truckers say, hey, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist. You know, I don't know whether you should or take the vaccine or not, but they say, I believe that if you wanna take a vaccine, you should have the right to do oh, it oh man if you don't, and i think if that's you it don't you should have yeah. the right now so they yeah. keep it really simple and yeah. philosophical and simple and so like and i love it because they don't need our science and we just sort of we just show how illogical and illegitimate it is because the science isn't there for them they're just talking on basic constitutional principles uh,
1: you know i tried to kind of wonder why is it that certain people just were not taken in by any of this now obviously in your job We'll get to that. But it was obvious when I saw your video, you know, the the type of kind of personality was kind of, well, let's just look at this. And, And I think there's an independence, freedom or whatever you want to call it, across all the characters. And that's what comes across strongly. And the independence to be right, to be wrong, to chew it out, to fight it out if it needs be. But let's let's be able to talk about it.
0: So you've, you've heard of the work of Matthias Desmet, right? That Dr. Robert Malone always cites about mass formation psychos and that there are people that are resistant, but here, here, I want to tell you something that's very, uh, very humbling for me is where I was when this all started to unfold is what protected me. I don't think had I been in a different place and a different time. So for instance, I'm from New York, right? At the time that this broke out, I was in Wisconsin. I left the university for had nothing to do with these kind of things. It was just the way they approached COVID. I knew was wrong, and I knew people were going to die. And I said I don't want any part of it. They wanted to do supportive care only. And I will tell you, within four patients of COVID that I saw, they clearly needed blood thinners. They clearly needed high dose corticosteroids, you know, for hyperclotting and inflammation. And yet, my uh, my hospital university said no. We will not support any of those interventions because there's no randomized controlled trials. Supportive care only, it's a viral syndrome. And people were dying at rates we'd never seen before. And I said, I want no part of this. And I left. Here's the thing. Had I been in New York City five years prior, I would have been a horrifically overworked ICU doctor. I literally was running full tilt all day long. I don't know in the pandemic whether I could have kept up with this data and seeing these oddities yeah. and now it wasn't supported i would have been surrounded by messaging and messages from the administration and from the agencies and i'm telling you frank i really believed had i been there i could easily in the past year been one of those doctors telling everyone to get vaccinated Been yeah, one of those I, doctors who was resentful at the unvaccinated like it could have happened
1: no i think in the heart i, I but i think is actually just maybe it's an independent point in your life where you're good enough good enough confident enough in your own viewpoint even do you know what i mean because i think if you were stuck in the job you still would have your nature would have been to solve the problem and you would have tried the first way and that wouldn't have worked you wouldn't have just gone okay well there's no other way i
0: think maybe not now no actually (laughs) frank you know what you're saying is actually really totally true (laughs) yeah you you would have excellent insight i'll tell you why because At the same time that I try to humble myself and say it could have happened to me, you know, because I've seen I have a lot of old colleagues. We don't talk anymore. It's very Mm -hmm. uncomfortable because they really are stuck in that narrative. And I think they think I've lost my way. And I think that they've been propagandized into some sort of weird place. But if you look at my career, I've always pushed back against how things were done and what the narrative was. I was always like, I always said why are you doing it this way? And the answer is always that like, because we've always done it that way. And when I hear that, like I get triggered, I'm like, wait, we've, we're doing it this way because you've always done it that way. And so I've always pushed back and tried to do things differently. And that's the other thing. So when I talk now or give lectures or I go to symposium, you know, there's oftentimes a QA. and a And even before the q and I've said this because how much I've known and how much I've been able to detect what's true and what's false, or at least I believe so. Um, people, you know, I always say to people, I say, I feel so bad for the average citizen in the world right now, because how do they know who to believe, mm. right? You have all this information flooding from agencies and societies and literally all of academia. And then you have these, I guess, fringe doctors or alternate opinions. And then there's like, there's all these independent journalists. They're not in mass media, but they're on YouTube and they do, everyone presents very credibly. They talk about data, their conclusions. And so nobody knows who to believe. And so I tell people, this would be my checklist. Mm. <laughs> so the people who are more credible would be A, those without any flagrant conflict of interest. Mm. <laughs> right, so yeah, yeah. conflict of interest, you need to have a, bear, a bit of skepticism about who's talking there. They have to have some amount of independence and that might even be more important. Meaning, Mm -hmm. and this is like, this is the perfect example of Van den Bosch. He first taught me the the importance of independence. So when he started coming out talking, how this is absolute folly from a scientific and immunological perspective of vaccinating mass vaccinating a global coronavirus pandemic, when he started coming out with his very erudite explanations of what would happen and what the downstream consequences of it were, I remember watching an interview with him and somebody asked him like, why are you the only one saying, he says, I'm the only one saying, cause right now I'm independent. He wasn't attached to a university. He wasn't on a big contract with the WHO. Mm. And he said that he had friends on the inside colleagues who worked for universities who privately agreed with him, yeah. but would not join him on the public stage because he was getting hammered. Mm. And so, so independence is key. And I very quickly became independent. I left the university because, and you know, and I've actually had to leave three jobs. Uh, one was mutual, one I, I resigned, and the other one I got fired. Um, but um, independent, no conflict of interest. And also another one, I would say this is personal, along with my colleagues, is that um, really no secondary gain. I mean, we've all suffered. All of us who've spoken out, like I've lost jobs, you know, all things have happened. Paul Marek's career ended, Umberto Maduri's career. These are some of the giants of the FLCCC. You know, Mm. long careers, some of the most highly published and and well-known guys in my specialty, and our careers are over. Mm. Um, We've been threatened. There's been hit jobs. And so, um, and then- you want someone who speaks data openly and transparently and is willing to debate. So whatever they say, they show data. Now, the problem with that one is the other side does that. The problem is they misrepresent the data and they yeah. don't debate. So that's why you need, like all those five. No of interest, independent, independent. Um, sometimes the persecution actually gives them more credibility yeah. you know um and then openly sharing data and willing to debate if you've seen any of this like we've been asking for open discussions debates with all of these agencies spewing out this stuff they won't do it they won't but, do it but you
1: see in a way that is the kind of why this why it was apparent when you uh, when you spoke in the senate that time and i'm going to talk about it now because
0: I was going to talk about it next. So the timing. Yeah. Okay. I want to say like the fifth event that happened was what like just launched my life for the next year, which is, that was, that was sort of the fifth thing is when I, I stumbled into the war and repurposed drugs, but you go ahead. I'm going to be very clear and very simple. All I ask is for the NIH to review our data that we've compiled of all of the emerging data. We have almost 30 studies. Everyone is reliably and reproducibly positive showing the dramatic impacts of ivermectin
1: well you just my perspective you know a friend sent it on to me and i i thought right here's another video i get to it and i oh man do you know what like fuck this it was so obvious to me when i saw you talking that here here you've got somebody who's authentic who's I don't want to say speaking from the heart because it's very unscientific thing to say, speaking from the heart, but speaking passionately full with data and all you're actually saying is, can you please just look at this now that is a totally different energy to saying this is the way it is, you're saying let's look at it, maybe I've missed something maybe I'm wrong. And it was that energy that uh, I probably have watched that your video. uh, Three or four times I'd say sometimes when I kind of I just go back and you might find that a bit odd.
0: We have 100,000 patients in the hospital right now dying. I'm a lung specialist. I'm an ICU specialist. I've cared for more dying COVID patients than anyone can imagine. They're dying because they can't breathe. They can't breathe. They're on high flow oxygen delivery devices. They're on non-invasive ventilators and or they're sedated and paralyzed and attached to mechanical ventilators that breathe for them. And I watch them every day. They die. By the time they get me in the ICU, they're already dying. They're almost impossible to recover. Early treatment is key. We need to offload the hospitals. We are tired. I can't keep doing this. If you look at my manuscript, and if I have to go back to work next week, any further deaths are gonna be needless deaths, and I cannot be traumatized by that. I cannot keep caring for patients when I know that they could have been saved with earlier treatment, and that drug that will treat them and prevent the hospitalization is ivermectin. But I, I kinda, it's just
1: rare. Honesty is, seems to be rare, and um, and it was similar. Like when you watched Peter McCullough talking in, in front of the Texas Senate, it's so funny. Like you know, it comes into my home. These you know, never in a million years would I go looking for this sort of information. And it's the same energy. It's not. It's it's trying to solve. It's yeah. try, you're presented with a problem. You're not going to sit. This is your skill set and it would be like if i was in a, um when i was running my company and i was hit with a problem i'm not just going to go okay well i'll just sit here and leave that I, i'm obviously going to try 50 million things until either the problem has been solved or it's got the better of me but don't ask me to stay quiet and so that's the that was the energy that i got that from how you spoke a man i really and and the friends that i sent it on to and so many people You know, we just spoke and it was obvious that this is what has been missing the doctor patient care.
0: Yeah.
1: It was the same with, like I I said to Dr. McCullough, I was saying, you know, what's been absent is doctor patient. What's been prevalent is this state patient rubbish. Yeah. And
0: absolutely. uh, You know, and that's like, we're letting institutions treat patients,
1: individual people, yeah.
0: patient to be treated, the doctor's going wrong. But you know what? You made another good, really good insight diagnosis right there is that we just wanted to figure this out. Yeah. And I always say this, like not necessarily about my ivermectin testimony, but when we formed the FLCCC and our first actions when COVID was coming, so I talked about what I was doing in the hospital, Ooh. but what I was doing privately, so Paul is one of my best friends and colleagues, he, he and I talk all the time. And when COVID started happening, we just started reading and we were sharing insights and we knew this was going on that was going on. And we just kept talking. We were building, pro- like I wrote my own protocol early on, like how I would want to be treated. And Paul was doing his stuff. And then we just brought together as a group. And we just, our mission was to come up with the most effective treatment protocols for COVID, mm-hmm. which is what I would think any public health agency would do is like, here's this badass new disease. Let's figure out how to treat it. And so we did yeah. what was so natural to us and that I assumed everybody else would do, right? And, and so- The other thing I want to, before we talk about ivermectin is that, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I gave testimony in the Senate in May of 2020. Uh, Yeah, I
1: do know it. I couldn't find it, but yeah.
0: So I did that at a time. So I basically called out to the world. I didn't know it was the world. Um, But I said, corticosteroids in the hospital patient are absolutely critical. People are going to die if you don't give them steroids. And I did that at a time when every national and international health agency was recommending against the use of corticosteroids because they thought it would increase mortality. Mm. And when I did that, I got killed attacked for being irresponsible malpractice and I would hurt patients. However, in that time, eight months, eight weeks later, a huge study came out of Oxford and it's now standard of care worldwide. So I was forgiven for being ahead of the curve then. And Ivermectin is a different story.
1: Well, yeah, I know. And let's, let's just, but let's uh, just that point. Um, that's what I couldn't understand. Just, is this not like a war? Oh, and yeah. in a war, you're not going to wait while your village has been shelved. You know, you're going to react and do things within a safe way to, to solve the problem. And it just
0: seemed like the world became frozen, waiting for the grace. You're describing yep. common sense. Like what you just said seems so plain and straightforward to us. Like, and I've used that war analogy exactly like that. Like mm. if you're in the middle of a bombing and an attack, I mean, you're going to figure out how to get out of it or how to defend yourself. Right. Mm. You're going to do whatever you can to save yourself. And we were trying to do the same thing for patients, you know, yeah. um, and, 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 and when I, so, you know, and I, I have a Substack which people seem to really enjoy, but I wrote a few posts about what those early months were when I was this, in this fight with my administration and my leadership who are telling me, do no harm. How dare you try a medicine without having it been proven in some huge ivory tower, double blind, multi-center, randomized controlled trial. And I thought that was literal insanity. I was watching their mouths move and I'm like, do you know that there's 88% mortality of these patients on a ventilator? They're clotting like crazy. You draw blood into a, this is the early wave. The clotting is still there. Nothing like that early wave. I've never seen patients clot like that in that original variant, but I'm like, literally like I'm at the bedside seeing blood clotting. It's clotting dialysis machines. It's clotting ECMO machines. The nurses are like, I'm drawing blood. It's clotting even before it gets into the tube. And yet I'm being told by my leadership that we can't use blood thinners because it hasn't been proven. And that's when I first knew, like, the way I think and the way everybody else thinks is really different. Yeah. Because your perspective is unique. People really went along with that across the country.
1: Yeah, it's just, it just kind of, it makes absolutely zero sense. And it, it also... It's kind of like what you would hear about back in you know in, in well it's a bureaucratic world and you know where you it's this is the way to do it now there's no independent thinking here we need to follow the protocols follow
0: guidelines follow the rules follow the guidelines
1: as opposed to okay we we're, we're we're, are we not in the business of saving lives here let's do whatever and mm-hmm. yeah it's like peter mccullough said um this was our super bowl and i get that you know, this is this is what we've trained our lives for this. We can we're going to get into the trenches and work and work and work. And, and and that sort of personality, in my mind, will work 22 hours a day, work until they fall over, exhausted to problem solve. It's just the nature of it because they know actually what it's not like, you know, it's often something stupid. You're saving lives. So you're going to stay up all day to do everything. And I And that's what became apparent to me, you know.
0: And and that initial supportive care only, you know, what's happened since, and I just sort of want to finish on this topic, but like, I just, I'm just so estranged from medicine because that original response that was adopted everywhere, which is wait for these trials, which we knew would take many, many months. um, Because one thing that that's what happened there is actually you could argue is somewhat unsurprising if you know anything about medicine in the last 10 years, you know, I'll just speak briefly about it. We have, we had the growth of this, of this movement, whose foundations are actually well supported and I believe in the foundations of this movement, but it's a movement called evidence based medicine. Mm-hmm. But what and, and evidence-based medicine was started like in the 90s, where you know, all these medicines and processes and how we treated diseases kind of came out of tradition and clinical practices. And people said, you know, we really should subject these medicines and practices to randomized controlled trials, you know, really examine with a control group and say, you know, what is the better way of doing this? And so you had this explosion of lots of clinical trials. And, and what happened was that it morphed into kind of a perverted version of itself. And it morphed into something which, I don't know how they did this, but I think it actually literally, it morphed that way because of pharmaceutical companies. But basically modern doctors right now are trained that you should believe nothing unless it comes out of a big randomized controlled trial in a high impact journal. Any other lower of evidence in a second tier or third tier journal, or it's not a big, you know, well-conducted trial funded by the NIH, which is pharma, by the way, they dictate who funds what in the NIH. And so they believe nothing. And the, one of the reasons why they did this, because there have been a couple of mistakes in the last 20 years where someone thought something worked, they started doing it, and then some big trial came along to disprove it. That's a very complicated history, because I don't think it's always the case that the trial got it right. <laughs> like, yeah. So, But anyway, that belief that you do nothing because you might make a mistake is some of what underlay that inaction. They People really were afraid of like, for instance, I was the clinical chief. My superiors were really very afraid that suddenly our hospital would be doing Dr. Corey's protocol, you know, because Dr. Corey thinks they need blood thinners, they need corticosteroids. And then you look around the country, nobody else is doing that they can't have that frank yeah you can't have some yahoo and I wasn't a yahoo I thought I had the credibility the credentials the expertise I mean I was an educator well, you did you,
1: you did yeah
0: and and so but they they that's the other thing not only that of evidence based medicine perversion but I've been fighting for a couple of years cuz I kept hearing from my superiors that they wanted us to standardize our processes in the ICU and they were like you know with septic shock which is a very common model they were like you know, there's not enough standardization, you know, you guys are doing one thing, other people are doing another thing, they really wanted us to do the same thing. And I would be like, what patients and providers, we're we're not like machinists on an assembly line of cars, I was like, patients are in cars. And we're not like a machinist doing a relatively simple task. I mean, I just found it absurd to try to standardize medicine in that way. But Hmm. now you understand why, like, there was this push for standardization and this push for not doing anything without well, trials. So what did they standardize? The do nothing approach. And So it's like, the, it, it, that's why I say it's somewhat unsurprising that that happened.
1: Yes, except that we're in the middle of a apparent pandemic where yeah. you, you accept that. You can yeah, a normal it, day yeah. to day for, I imagine for insurance, for just for all of that, that kind of logic in that hyper world makes sense.
0: For me, the major logic that was being violated was that we hadn't seen these mortality rates before in the ICU. I mean, mm-hmm. literally across the country, you had patients coming in, getting intubated, landing on ventilators, their lengths of stay in the ventilator were literally unprecedented. Um, it's a very odd disease COVID because patients can get very, very, very sick And then they can stay in this high level of critical illness for very prolonged periods. Mm -hmm. As an ICU specialist, most critical illness where you develop like respiratory failure or shock states, you get very, very sick. Those that survive start to slowly improve over the first few days. Like that first two or three day window really dictates how you're going to do. So either you start to improve or you actually deteriorate and start moving towards death. Whereas COVID was weird. They get so sick and then just stay. And they were like in this suspended animation. And that's why we were running out of ventilators and ICU rooms because the length of stays that people can be on a ventilator on full support were unprecedented, but Mm -hmm. many of them were dying. And so I was trying to tell, like, I was trying to be like, isn't it obvious that by not doing something like clearly these patients are missing some sort of treatment. That was the thing that just killed me. It killed Mm -hmm. me. So anyway, yeah,
1: well, so you, but you didn't stop with that. You so take take me to. Ivermectin. Yeah, so I
0: so I left the university, went to New York, and I knew New York was much more. Um, and I when I say liberal, meaning they weren't as rigid and protocolized. Like when I got to New York. Already people were hearing about steroids and it might be working. And and New York's a little bit of a shoot from the hip because that's where I trained. And I was used to that freedom and they needed me so bad. Like when I got to New York, I was able to do whatever I wanted. I was using high dose steroids. I was trying lots of stuff and it was a, it was a very freeing time. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, what I say is when I left the university, which I'd been in for five years in the ivory tower and I went back to my old stomping ground in New York, I literally felt like I'd left a cult. Mm -hmm. I think it was such a, uh, it was really hard time. And I intellectually, I was like, wow, I've been fighting a cult for five years. And, Little did I know. Now New York is a cult. Like this, these processes and approaches now been solidified throughout the system. But at the time, New York was a relatively freer place. Then Mm -hmm. I did locums. I traveled around the country doing independent contracting work, running ICUs like in South Carolina, some hot spots. Then I got another job, and let's just let's talk about what happened. That second job was at a major medical center in Milwaukee, and about a month and a half into the job. I was asked to testify on early treatment and I had just, you know, our group, Paul Merrick first identified the signal of data around ivermectin. And I wrote that review paper, which got a lot of attention. I had posted it on a preprint server. I was asked to testify. And I gave that testimony, like literally, I had never seen so much data in support of a medicine. Like it had in vitro, 10 years of an in vitro studies showing that it, it, it blocked replication of a dozen RNA viruses. Mm. Um, It had in vivo animal studies. It had, we had these case series and case, large case series from different centers around the world showing like 3,300 patients consecutively treated in the emergency room with 16 hospitalizations and two deaths Mm -hmm. from Dominican Republic And, and then others from Bangladesh. And then you had observational randomized control trials, every single one showing some amount of benefit. Not always large enough to be statistically significant, but when you put them in together in what's called a meta-analysis, they were profoundly positive. I literally was looking at the penicillin of COVID, and and so I gave my testimony. And the first thing that happened is I lost my job.
1: <laughs> nice. Wow,
0: really? Because it went viral. Yeah, <laughs> literally, the institution seized. What's interesting is they didn't fire me. They. Told me not to. They they called me urgently like the next day. They told me not to talk to anyone or any press until I talked to them, and then like my boss and one of the hospital administrators got me on the phone. They were very angry that I used my title, and they they accused me, which has happened before. It happened at the University of Wisconsin. They accused me of speaking on their behalf, and my my answer both times was like. I do not recall saying I was the spokesperson for this institution. It was clear I was speaking on my own expertise, on my own paper Mm. um, from my own group. And, but they accused me of that anyway. They didn't fire me. They offered me a new contract, Frank. Right, (laughs) new contract. (laughs) Because my old contract had no stipulations on speaking publicly, doing anything. But my new one had about eight different restrictions on my first amendment rights. Like I wouldn't be able to talk to press without clearing with them first. Anytime I spoke, I would have to say this. I'd have to say, Frank, what I'm about to say to you are my opinions, my opinion alone, and not that of my employer.
1: Right. (laughs) Jesus.
0: I was like, I'm not doing this nonsense. I was like, bye, and I left. I could Um, ask you
1: just, I imagine to get in front of the Senate, it's not like anybody can get in front of the Senate. You have to surely go through...
0: Total happenstance. So what happened, that's a good story. So what happened was the Senator who convened these hearings, understood that the health system was failing. So in the spring of 2020, he was he's, he's an interesting guy because what his public face is this radical Republican who's crazy, but I know him privately now. He's really a good guy. He's smart and he sees things that are wrong. He tries to correct them. Mm-hmm. And he knew that that initial health response where doctors weren't treating patients and dying he knew it was crazy and 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 what he did is he started to see he found our website and our protocols and so he found the FLCCC my organization we'd put up protocols on how to treat it and he was very attracted to that he's like there's a group of doctors high credibility who are saying do this and he saw that on our like masthead that the chief of the critical care service at the university of Wisconsin, he's the Senator from Wisconsin. This is Ron, so that, that was just Ron like Johnson, this confluence yeah. of errors. So who did he call me? Right. Cause I was okay. at the university. So he called me. And that first conversation we had, he said, listen, I just want the doctors to take their gloves off. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why these people are going to the hospital and not being treated and they're all dying. And I was like, Music to my ears. And so it just so happened, the senator who was like on the forefront of trying to correct this problem was from there. And when he asked me to speak in that May one, I think he really liked what I said. I was also impassioned. I was also very forceful. Mm. And he knew that in the months later, he got a lot of calls from constituents and physicians who said, Senator, we really appreciate that because you know I treated my patient with the steroids. They got better. I believe steroids saved my life. save that of my patients so he knew that like he was able to get good information out of us so of course when he did his second round of hearings in in late december or in december um he asked me to testify again he already knew me i'd already testified for him and so yeah like i said it was it was sort of a conflict if if it had been a a senator from virginia it would have been paul marrick who had been invited to the senate you know yeah okay because he was from wisconsin so
1: yeah, but you, you um, yeah, I mean, your credibility was established. You had the credentials and experience and so the background, yeah. Um, so talk to me then about what happened Yeah. and where we're at and yeah.
0: So it's a book and I'm trying to write that book now, um, but I, I'll, I'll try to hit the high level points of what happened. So what happened next, and it was just so central to everything that happened since is the Andy Hill saga. Okay. Do you know who Andy Hill is? No. Okay. Um, So right after my testimony, I was invited by a French biotechnology company to give a lecture at a conference they were putting together on ivermectin and COVID. And there was about 12 lecturers there. And this is like maybe 10 days after my um, testimony. And I gave a lecture on the, I gave the opening lecture of the conference. It was three days of lectures and there's scientists, and investigators of different trials of ivermectin around COVID. It was really a great conference. And on the third day, a doctor named Andrew Hill, he's not a physician, but he's a PhD and a pharmacology professor. He gave a lecture and on his slides, he was from the WHO and he was from UNITAID, right? Two major international health organizations. And he presented data on a systematic review and meta-analysis of all the randomized control trials on ivermectin. And it was astounding. He was showing faster time to viral clearance, faster time to clinical recovery, and far less death, huge reductions in mortality. And so me and Paul, we were like, holy cow, the WHO is onto this. I reached out to him. I got his name, you know, his email from the CEO of the tech company and me and Andy started talking and I discovered that he, he was working for a team from Unitaid that was directed at only researching repurposed drugs, right? Generic off patent available medicines. And they've been doing this work since June. Ivermectin was their sixth medicine that they investigated. The first five had failed, supposedly failed. Because I'm going to tell you what I think about that team looking at repurposed drugs now. When I first met Andy, I was blown away because I said, that's exactly what I screamed for in my testimony. I was saying, why isn't there an effort to look at repurposed drugs? I literally said that in my testimony. And mm-hmm. now I find a guy 10 late days later who's working for the WHO and Unitaid, and he's looking at repurposed drugs. And he was shocked by how strong the evidence around ivermectin is. Mm-hmm. But what happened next, because I, I literally, Frank, if I tell this story, it's an hour and a half. And like, okay, I'm writing, yeah, yeah. like multiple posts on everything that happened. But I'm going to give you the f- little foreshadowing. What happened is they got to Andy
1: nice. and they
0: turned him. That's the short story of what happens now. Okay. But how that unfolded and when and how deeply I knew that, um, it, in hindsight, it took too long. Um, but what happened next is... We started talking to Andy every day. We were sharing data, insights. He was asking us if we knew of any other trials, and he was scaring all the clinical trial registries and he's working on his meta analysis. And we knew he was close to putting his findings up on a preprint server um, before he submitted it for publication. And about 10 days later, or the next month in January, he put his preprint, he put his manuscript up, and Paul and I read it. And we were just shocked it was the craziest paper we've ever written we've ever read we it, it made no sense like he presented like normally when you peer review papers in medicine generally investigators doctors when they're writing up their results of a experiment or a trial they usually are a little over enthusiastic with their conclusions like the data will show this And then the conclusions would be a little bit too far. And so you Mm kind of have to bring them back to like a more sober, you know, uh, conservative place. This paper was the opposite. I'd never seen such strong data lead to a conclusion that was negative. Mm. And Paul and I were like, this is crazy town. And when you read the paper, it was full of like attacks on the data, like limitations, limitations. And this doesn't, the data doesn't make sense because of the concentrations and like, and, and, and there's also data that he put in that we knew that he knew was false. right? And so that's when we were like, what is going on here? And that was one instance. And then at the same time, and this is also really important. So when I testified, I was working on submitting my manuscript to a journal and I was looking for the journal and I quickly found the journal I wanted to because it was a high impact journal and it was a journal for whom... A guy, and I'll tell you his name in a second, but one man, a scientist, proposed to this journal that they should start an issue on the use of repurposed drugs in COVID and just dedicate it to the evidence and data around available drugs. And when I heard of this man and that he had proposed this issue and I wrote to him, I said, hey, I have this manuscript on ivermectin. And I sent him a draft. I was like, would you be interested in submitting? He said, absolutely submit it. I will try to help you get, you know, a thorough and speedy peer review, because that's what I wanted. You know, I really I was like, we got to get this through. People are dying. Mm -hmm. You know who that man was? Dr. Robert Malone. Right. This is before Robert was Robert Malone.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: Robert Malone at that time, he told me because I would when, when everything that unfolded in the next few months, I would tell Robert, I was like, Robert, you know, so much. You've been mm. so involved in pandemic response. He knew people in government, health agencies. I would say I said to Robert one day, I said, Robert, why aren't you out here with me? You know, because mm. I was in public. I was you know advocating getting killed. And he said to me at the time, he said, he said, if they can't see you, they can't shoot you i was like thanks robert i'll take all the bullets oh, very good but, then, yeah. but that, what's so brilliant about that phrase is like literally after a whole bunch of stuff that happened and he and i were working very closely together like three months later suddenly this guy Robert Malone starts showing up on my feeds and giving mm-hmm. talks and he starts getting attacked and i remember calling robert i was like mm-hmm. hey robert I thought you said if they can't see you, they can shoot you. I'm like, you're getting killed out there, my yeah, man. Jesus. <laughs> but he finally, you know, he, he saw that he had to speak up. You know, he yeah. got involved on the vaccine side and he he finally saw the corruption around that and he went after the vaccines. And
1: so yeah.
0: um, but it was interesting because it shows you the kind of guy Robert is. He was trying to work within the system, um, trying to do those things to try to get uh knowledge around. Repurpose drugs, and so he said this issue. But what, what happened next is we went through rigorous peer review, three governmental scientists and an expert clinician, three rounds of peer review, finally got accepted. And what happened next is it's an online journal and I was waiting for, I went through copy editing, proofing, and then we were waiting for it to be published. And I was watching people die every single day. And I was writing to the journal why isn't this published online? There are people dying. This is of critical importance to the world. Day after day passed. And then I started to escalate my emails. And I said, I am suspecting scientific misconduct here because there was no reason why they were slow walking my paper to production. And once I escalated, Robert Malone, who was my editor, got a call from the chief editor of all the journals. The journal is called Frontiers in Pharmacology and it's a collection of medical journals, generally well-regarded because there's like frontiers in neuropsychiatry, medicine, surgery. And the lead editor of all the journals basically told us because there were some comments on the validity of our conclusions, he hired some anonymous third-party peer reviewer content expert who reviewed my paper and said that it was an advocacy piece and my conclusions were unsupported by my data and that he uh, that he recommended retraction and that's when i knew the fix was in like i knew that we were up against stuff that like i mean it literally and unprecedented in our career so if you look at paul Marrick, he's the most published practicing intensivist in the history of our specialty i don't know maybe 500 publications joe Verone, 700 umberto maduri 300 And and in all those 1,200 peer-reviewed publications, none of them could recall ever a retraction before publication, after peer review. Jesus. And then the next insanity was, and I was still naive at this point, because even though I knew the fix was in, I still had this impression that the WHO, a public health organization, like I knew someone, some ulterior force got to this editor and whacked our paper. I knew that. but I still thought the WHO would do the right thing because they, they we knew they were going to come up with a new recommendation for ivermectin March 31st of, of, of 2021. And you could see the press conferences leading up to that time. And, you know, the doctors on their panels would say, yes, we're looking at it. There is some concern about the data. Like They were already kind of hedging about the data around ivermectin. And then when that document came out and their recommendation was not to use outside of clinical trials, and I saw what they did to the evidence base, I mean, it was literally unsubtle, corrupt actions. They were basically saying, we didn't use this trial because of this. We didn't use this trial because of this. They basically threw out most of the trials, whittled it down to like a small bunch, and they said the outcomes are uncertain. And when you look at what they did to the evidence of ivermectin you look what they do with pharmaceutical company data like the the one and done thing like pharmaceutical companies they do one little trial they put it in it shows benefit and boom it goes yeah yeah and that's when i that was when i was like literally i'm in the fight for my life here and Mm -hmm. then after that then that's when like some hit i already had some hit pieces on me um like in the media then you saw the narrative sort to of change that, you know, then we suddenly got painted as these fervent, like religiously advocate, like they would use religiously advocating for ivermectin, like mm. these iverme- fringe ivermectin advocates yeah. that were going against the narrative. Like suddenly we started to get pigeonholed. Right. Yeah. And I was like, and, and I thought, and this is how naive us. I, I really thought if you look at our CVs, and what we've contributed to the field of medicine in our careers collectively, you know, like I was a pioneer in what's called critical care ultrasound. I literally taught most of the country. I created the courses. I traveled the country. I was a well-known educator. I, I am the senior editor of of, of a, a best-selling textbook that's in its second edition, seven languages. You know, it's read across the world by doctors. And Paul Marek has a CV like is unparalleled. Umberto Maduri. And suddenly, with this religiously advocating band of right wing. Of no horse pace, horse paced. Uh, yeah, well, we,
1: we're we gonna we're gonna get to that. Um, I suppose I want to ask you. As, well, maybe we we'll go through that, but right now, um, where is? ivermectin in terms of treating people you know or even in the last say three or four months has it have
0: have you have you got that published paper oh yeah so so after uh we got rejected um and and by the way the other crime about that ret- retraction is i said to the lead editor i said why don't you show me this peer review I, i'd be happy to revise it because i knew we needed to get it out yeah he denied the opportunity to revise it. You know, if if I use too much advocacy language, if I was over-exuberant in my conclusions, well, then why don't you suggest some modifications to the management, which is commonly part of peer review? Yeah. No. He's moving to retraction. And then he said we're happy if you resubmit it. And that's when I really laughed. I was like, Oh, you want me to resubmit to you criminals? I was like, no way. And, and, so I, and I took yeah. it to another journal. Okay, I actually took it to another journal who had originally invited me to submit my manuscript to them. It was called the American journal of therapeutics. And because I remember they'd invited me back in December to submit. And I, I, I remember I pleasantly wrote back. I said, I really appreciate the invitation, but I was invited to submit to another journal i'm going to try there and so when i went to that editor um and i said to him what happened he was really understanding he actually knew what happened he Mm. said you know this is science when you have something new that's a major advance these are some things that happened and and i submitted the peer reviews because i got them from robert malone so he was able to see all the revisions everything we had been asked to do and he accepted it and it was published now, since then, it's been attacked multiple times that he actually had to write a letter of concern because I refused to respond to the last attack, mostly because I was exhausted and I'm just done.
1: Yeah.
0: Like the attacks are crazy. I don't, and I just, I can't do it anymore. Yeah. And many other patients, many other people, those in papers were retracted as well. So it's like, I can't fight the pharmaceutical companies through the, through the journals. I'm no. just not going to do it. Um, So that's so go on, sorry. uh, What was your original question? Well, it was just I did did get it republished. So it is republished and it's there. And it's actually it became one of the top 20 most popular scientific papers published in the last 20 in the last 10 years. Out of the last 20 million, it was like the 13th most popular at one point.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Because um, it's full of misinformation. Maybe that's why it was so Oh, involved. it's definitely,
1: that's why. Um, if, if what I'm going to, um, because I watched it and then I think I saw you on uh, Joe Rogan and then suddenly the horse dewormer thing came about. Now, I'm going to do something really quickly here first before we talk about the horse dewormer, which I, I really think is kind of important because I Googled it for RTE which is the website of our state news channel, right? right? And I just think this is really kind of interesting. Yep. Um, yep. So this is 2015, yep. and it, this should be mean something to you. But yep. of I, it's, course. You know, Irish scientist receives Nobel Prize for Medicine. And uh, Irish scientist professor, I'm going to just read it because I think it deserves to be read, given what we're going to go on to talk about um irish scientist professor william c campbell has been presented with this year's nobel prize for medicine at a ceremony in stockholm let's just say that a nobel prize is a pretty phenomenal wonderful prize to get and this is a man the 85 year old who grew up in donegal which is in the north of ireland was jointly awarded the accolade for his discovery of the drug ivermectin Professor Campbell became the second Irish person to win the Nobel Prize for Science after the Ernest was well, connected to physics, right? But I suppose I just wanted to kind of say this part: Professor Campbell's work on medicine to kill parasites has saved millions from awful disease like river blindness, right? Now I just kind of want to let that hang for a moment, right? Because it's an Irish man, and there hasn't been many Irish men who have got Nobel prizes now. If I just move along the world here, and let me see, I have a few little slides open. But rapidly, this drug, because suddenly it became a possibility of treating COVID, suddenly, horse drug. Yep. May HSC overuse of ivermectin after huge seizure of horse drug.
0: But wait, look, Frank, go back to yeah. that real quick. Yeah. For me, the, most, the more alarming is the subtitle. Dr. Gerald Barrett, virologist. So this is what they do, right? They get a doctor from an ivory tower and just one statement, right? So automatically, because it baffles this virologist from an ivory tower, automatically I get to look like some friend, you know, I'm actually advocating for a horse drug now. Yeah. And that's that's exactly what you are doing. It baffles real scientists. So real doctors, credentialed doctors are baffled as to why this group would do this.
1: Oh, you see this guy here just as a total aside. That's the chief medical officer of Ireland. Oh, man. I, I won't even begin to talk yeah, about it. I'm just going don't. to show you. I'm just going to show you his head because I'm sure you have loads of people that you could talk about. Um, so we won't. But
0: that, that subtitle, right? There's many different forms of it. it every yeah. article you see on this horse dewormer, every time they'll cite who says to use it, they'll say it's based on flimsy evidence. And then they say the FDA, the NIH, the CDC, da, 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 they don't approve it. And they just cite the experts not approving it. So it's always about experts versus fringe doctors.
1: Yeah, that's the word they use, experts. Experts say, if you've noticed, experts say. And so this is the main public urge not to buy drugs online after rise in horse dewormer seizures.
0: Total nonsense, that's a lie by the way.
1: Medicine for cows. But the Mississippi Poison Control Center has been pelted with calls from people taking Ivermectin in a dangerous attempt to dodge COVID. So what, what we've seen there was across the world in a I mean, let's let's try and admire the work of how to discredit something in a heartbeat. Because you have to kind of respect your opposition. Terrifyingly
0: it, effective. It
1: was phenomenal. And it was everywhere. And everybody was convinced. Why would such and such recommend a a horse deworming medicine they must be crazy they're idiots and, when, and blah 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 they
0: pair it when they pair it with with anti-vax oh it's like a one-two punch yeah right? you're gone you, you know, really are gone like horse dewormer advocates yeah. and and you're just done you're done yeah you really are done yeah but you see i mean that kind of messaging and propaganda is so mm. effective yeah so effective and, yeah and you know going back to the horse dewormer so because <laughs> i lecture on this That horse dewormer, right? So suddenly every major mass media around the world will not call it a medicine. They call it a Mm. horse dewormer and it's Mm. everywhere and every time, every TV show host, every broadcaster, every news report, every newspaper article, horse dewormer. And that's just like, Really? And, and remember, that's what Joe Rogan got really upset about. He went after CNN because he's like, yeah. how can you call it? And and he called out Sanjay Gupta. You know, he was one of the medical consultants for CNN. And you could tell he was a little uncomfortable. Yeah, they shouldn't have done that. Like it was yeah. uh, like one one outlet who may have mischaracterized. It's like, no, it wasn't just CNN. It was everybody. Somebody yeah. got the memo. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sorry to go to sinister stuff, but, you know, those two things that I told you, right? So the HHS, now know we now know billion dollars to promote vaccine propaganda. Mm-hmm. Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation gives hundreds of millions to media outlets around the world. Mm-hmm. And, and Frank, can you tell me why someone whose purported main interest is the furthering of public health goals, why they're giving so much to media? Why don't you just focus on public health and let mm-hmm. media be the media? Right, and yeah. so you see this massive infiltration of money into media, and so. But but here's the thing about that horse dewormer. It was a PR campaign. It was already written. Those terminology ready to go. Those messaging yeah. was always prepared. Mm-hmm. And if I haven't mentioned, because I don't know if I completed my thought, but it is now my firm belief that that team assembled to research repurpose drugs. They were not interested in finding efficacy, disseminating that. They were interested in finding efficacy and distorting that. Yeah. They were on a mission. That's what's called controlled opposition or opposition research. Andy Hill was a pawn and he got turned. He was just a little cog. He's not the guy for the moment, not a guy for history. And he was a victim of that system and he fell captured to them. But mm. that team was assembled, literally assembled by Bill and Melinda Gates. Remember, they are vaccine. They, they have to fight vaccine hesitancy. And a repurposed drug showing efficacy will absolutely damage vaccine. I'm, I'm and I'm, I'm making very kind of bold accusations. I don't care. I know this. I know this for a fact. Mm. The wars on repurposed drugs, what they did to hydroxychloroquine, what they're doing to ivermectin, what they're doing to fluvoxamine is absolutely so consistent and repetitive. Mm. We know it's corruption. And, and this PR campaign, the way it unfolded in the, in the United States is quite interesting. We had this huge Delta surge in August. And what happened is, as it surged, the prescriptions of ivermectin in this country skyrocketed. And there was this one week in mid-August where it hit 90,000 subscriptions a week. And that's when they unleashed the campaign. It was literally, when we talk about a war, they saw that the doctors and patients... And I would argue we my organization probably had a lot to do with that, right? Yeah, yeah. People were following our protocols using our no programs, doubt about it. I, I had them printed world. off. I gave them to my mom and my yeah, sister.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Everybody <laughs> did around the road, Lots yeah. of lay people, they got their hands on it, they were self-treating. Now I'm yeah. not happy about the self-treating. No, probably
1: it was, not the best.
0: <laughs> when you consider the environment we were in, and we had then no we choice. Had Yeah. agencies, like it is what it is. We were at war, and yeah. when you're fighting a war against those forces. We have to do what we can to protect ourselves. And so so what happened was as those prescriptions started to ramp up, I saw this happen. A couple of reports in like these secondary media outlets about, you know, upticks in in calls to poison control centers. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, then there was this crazy headline in the United States. I don't know if you ever saw it, but there was this headline that came out. Emergency room. No, gunshot wound victims could not get care due to emergency room being overfilled oh, with geez. ivermectin overdose. I saw,
1: I saw that one, man.
0: That is professional public relations. Oh they know my God.
1: Create. I, I that remember that. On. I remember just going, oh my God.
0: It went nuts, viral around the world. Those are professionals doing that. They know how to write a headline like that. Even yeah. I couldn't resist. Well, of course I was going to click on it. But the absurdity of the headline I mean, you know, in the United States, we've got a little gun problem here. You know, yeah. So it's yeah, like literally, yeah. literally. And I'm picturing like gunshot wound victims holding their side with like blood coming out and they're mm. online waiting to be seen. But there's all these ivermectin overdoses. Oh, God.
1: Doses. Yeah. I, and it is, it is again a phenomenal way to change the mind, change brains, because it's just the two connected together. It's- yes. Heard, and and it's it, stuck and, then.
0: But, but it, it's again, it's these poor people desperate taking horse dewormer and <laughs> filling emergency rooms. Right. And so, so that happened. And then the CDC did what they did to hydroxychloroquine. And, and the way it works here, they put out a bulletin saying that this was, uh, that they're getting more and more reports of poisonings, the FDA hasn't approved it, it's not approved or recommended for uh, use in COVID, and it went to every state department of health across the 50 states, who then sent it to every physician licensed in that state. So you're talking about within 36 hours, every physician in the country is now looking at a bulletin from the gods of science and knowledge, telling them it's a dangerous drug and it's not approved. And already hospitals had been removing it from their formularies because it wasn't approved, recommended by societies and everybody was using it. And we kind of started a civil war where patients were going to hospitals, asking for ivermectin doctors were denying them literally one of the world's safest and cheapest medicines. Right. Mm But absolutely not. You can't have even if you're dying, we're not giving you ivermectin, you know, Mm -hmm. crazy, crazy town stuff. And, and then, so they did that CDC bulletin and then what happened next is that also went to all the pharmacy boards and all the boards of pharmacy sent to every pharmacist in the country. And so you see this awesome power of a captured agency, an Mm -hmm. agency literally told to tell the nation's providers and people not to use ivermectin. And it gets to exactly where it needs to go and suddenly pharmacists stopped filling Now, that we'd already had a little bit of difficulty filling, but now they were really not filling with all of the arrogance. It's not FDA approved. And you realize like that was the most absurd and unsubtle action. When the CDC wrote in their memo that this is not FDA approved for COVID, you don't need the FDA to approve it. It's already an FDA approved. drug. It's called off-label prescribing, which is not only normal, legal, common, but it's supposed to be. Actually, recommended when there's no alternative treatments, you're supposed to use off-label stuff. And so, mm. and the so the and no one was going to apply for FDA emergency. You know, I knew the company here, I knew the pharmaceutical company here that was trying for months to try to get an EUA from it, it was never gonna happen. I mean, it literally mm. cost two million dollars to get an FDA, probably more. And so, like, there's no money in Ivermectin. And yeah. so you see the fate of repurposed drugs. And so after that came out, the pharmacist stopped to fill and you know, now we're seeing, you know, even more hit, hit attacks. You saw more editorials in the big journals just showing you know, and then Andy Hill appears back in the, in the picture because now Andy Hill is writing papers. There was this one other little event that happened is that one of the studies on ivermectin, what's ridiculous is there are 78 controlled trials and there's 32 randomized, 16 double blind randomized controlled trials. But one of the trials out of Egypt was purportedly fraudulent. Now it may be I'm not totally sure it is. It kind of looks like it is because I don't think the the investigator did not defend himself well. He would not share his data set, but apparently these this attack team, which I think is being paid to attack the ivermectin evidence, and Andy Hill is working with them. They're like podcasters, and now Andy Hill is listening to these podcasters. It's so bizarre. I'm not putting down podcasts, but they're literally <laughs> not okay. very highly yeah, published. Yeah. They're not yeah. very highly published, and they're doing these like you know evidence based medicine attacks on on the ivermectin evidence. And now Andy Hill is literally writing papers about the misleading and fraudulent evidence behind ivermectin. And this is a guy I knew for two months who was giving lectures with us on the world stage in South Africa, everywhere. He was saying, before he got further, he was saying that he was telling the world in one public lecture on January 29th, he said, I advise all countries of the world to get ready get supplies because he was anticipating there was gonna be an approval soon. So I actually think he he didn't know he was a pawn. Like he thought he was doing good research to find the evidence. And he thought he was gonna feed the organization who was then gonna recommend. But it's my belief he was working for the other side. It was already a done deal. They were never gonna let him. And actually he got muzzled. So after that lecture in which he said, you have to uh, prepare, you know, get ready, get supplies to unleash ivermectin in the pandemic, he got muzzled. Like within okay. within three days, he told me that he's not, because I asked him to do an interview with like some big media outlet. He said, I, I'm not allowed to speak publicly anymore.
1: So, so can I just you just say again, the 78 uh, in terms of the data to prove the efficacy of ivermectin. Can you just give me that information? So
0: it's So there's a website called c19early.com.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And on there, it's an expert group of anonymous scientists and researchers. But what they've done in COVID is remarkable. They have have compiled what are called meta-analyses. They've compiled and performed meta-analyses of all the trials on dozens of compounds, on anything that was studied in COVID. So it's almost like this library of clinical trials evidence on any component. And they actually even have one uh, it's called the forest plot of everything that has shown efficacy. Ivermectin is like fifth from the top. And it's the only one in green because it has enough trials to support it. And it literally has 78 with 85,000 patients. And what's funny is for, if you look at my past year, for the first six months, I would argue every day the data. I would be like, no, look at the data. I would, I would cite trials and evidence and all. This, and I was just doing data arguments. <clears throat> I was writing white papers to the NHO, WHO. I was writing to the NIH committee, because I knew the committee. I had presented to the committee after my testimony. Uh, One of the politicians who uh, uh, oversees the health agencies, he made them sit down with me, Paul Merrick, and Andy Hill. And we presented to the NIH committee. And the NIH committee actually changed their recommendation. They used to have a recommendation where it was, uh, do not use outside of a clinical trial. And they moved it to neutral. Neutral meaning there is insufficient evidence to recommend for or against, but we got them to change their recommendation to neutral. They haven't moved it since. And, and so I argue data for six months. I'm tired. Yeah. I don't yeah. Do it anymore. Don't even, I, literally, yeah. I could do three hours with you. And after about a half an hour, you'd be like, stop, stop, stop. I'm convinced. Yeah, but fine. And I'm, I can yeah, tell you about the on. data attacks and the data attacks. This is the narrative around ivermectin data. All of the trials are small, low quality, fraudulent. Um, yeah, basically small, low quality and fraudulent. And then the other thing they've done is the only trials that have appeared in high impact journals they tend to be larger, done in academic medical centers. Every single one of them is underpowered or underdosed. When I say underpowered, they'll compare deaths. So few deaths occurred in the trial that you can't reach statistical significance. And one of the most brazen one is just got published two weeks ago in the, in the journal JAMA. And was a study out of Malaysia. And when they looked at those who went on a ventilator or those who died, literally there was 10 in the control group, three in the ivermectin group. So even though it was three, more than three times more deaths in the control group, it did not reach statistical significance. And it was a similar thing to those who landed on a ventilator. And so you saw this strong signal, but it's not statistically significant, but the highest form of evidence is actually a meta-analysis. So even though that individual trial didn't show benefit or statistically significant benefit, all you do is put that data into the meta-analysis and the meta-analysis gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And so the meta-analysis, especially on that uh, website that I gave you, is profound. And and what that group did on C-19 early, they did something really cool. They saw all these attacks on the trial, so oh, the, there's a couple of rogue group of investigators that work with Andy Hill, and they point to this trial coming out of this country. They didn't conceal the randomization. They didn't do follow up. They 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 didn't say this analysis in in their uh, when they registered the trial on Clinton. So like they're literally nitpicking, like any anomaly in the conduct of these trials. And by the way, these trials they're not pharma funded. Usually done by well meaning clinicians doing the best they can. Yeah. And they attack. And by the way if you want to believe that every pharma study done, you know, crosses every T and every I, I you you get what we're talking about. So they attack, attack. And what this group did, it's just so funny, not funny, but it's just, it's brilliant. When they do the meta analysis, they put all 78 trials in meta analysis. They saw all the attacks on let's say 15 or 20 trials. They said, fine, we'll remove those 15 or 20 trials. Guess what happens to the signal? It got stronger. Right. So like you can attack any individual trial. I mean, it's a sport. You can always make a trial look bad, but you can't remove 78 controlled trials showing a massive reduction in mortality.
1: Well, it, and it comes back to the the blatancy of just, we're in a pand- pandemic. That's, this is uh, like what you said, very, very zero, almost zero risk, zero risk, high potential reward. Let's just try this. I mean, that's just common sense. But I wanted to hit. I wanted to hit you with one. With um, this is somebody kind the, of
0: the last point, though, Frank. Yeah. is The bar to get approval for a big pharma drug is here. The bar to get ivermectin approved, <laughs> the world's safest drug, world's cheapest drug, widely available in every country, right? Yeah. Where do they set that bar? Yeah. I mean, they literally set it above where the evidence is. You cannot get ivermectin over the regulatory bar. Oh,
1: man, that's heartbreaking for you.
0: Oh, my God. And this is the stuff that I've learned. And I've just been literally banging my head, writing white papers, you know, speaking to whoever I can, trying to call out the, you know, the insanity and the corruption. And, and just to finish on that, Frank, my Substack literally is committed to detailing everything that I told you, but lots of other. I mean, like I have waves of retractions. And so I plan to post a blog on every single thing I witnessed on the attack on ivermectin because I had a front row seat. I saw everything. I saw what the agencies did. I saw what the media did. I saw what the journals did. And and it's really a concerted attack. And it's all propaganda on ivermectin. It's highly effective. And they've been doing this for decades, right? Ivermectin Mm -hmm. is only the latest in a long line of repurposed drugs that they can attack. They're so good at what they do
1: why in the world would an individual would want to take a medication for livestock? I wanted to talk to you about what Alex Berenson messaged out to his followers. Yeah. I don't know if you, yeah, and I, I, the I only don't, reason I just I, I don't th- don't kind pay of think that, to
0: him on ivermectin anymore, I, I, you know, he, he's acting very bizarrely lately. I couldn't understand, I when, yeah. there's so much bizarre going on in the world, I have no time to think about what's driving Alex Berenson because, yeah, he fine, he used yeah. to be quite good on the vaccines. And yeah. then he, like, went after Malone on stuff. He's getting ivermectin completely wrong. And so, like, I, I mean, couldn't he, understand that, why
1: same, he wouldn't talk like, to you. Right, yeah. That
0: same JAMA article that I just referenced, he's using that to say it doesn't work. Yeah, that's the Malaysia.
1: Case. It's in Malaysia or something. You're, yeah. you're
0: looking at a positive trial. I mean, it showed positive benefit. It strengthens the meta-analysis. Yeah. Oh, oh and, and he's using, <laughs> look at this. It actually increased the risk, although the results were not statistically significant. But here's the thing. The endpoint was the risk of prevent, pro- progression. The secondary endpoints, which was on a ventilator mortality, were absolutely compelling. So it's just a weird trial. I couldn't understand is, why is What's more yeah. important, Frank? Progression to severe disease or landing on a ventilator and dying? But Do you know how they define severe disease? The need for oxygen. So I was like, do I care about the need for oxygen or do I care about dying? And so it's a bizarre result and people are misusing it. And he's another one. It's very lazy the way he used it and the way he tweeted it. it it shows no context, no understanding of the trial and no understanding of the evidence base on, on, on which that trial sits. Uh, Yeah.
1: I thought it was kind of trying to be a maverick for the sake of it. And I, 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 you know, in a while, for a while, I kind of considered him, you know, there's not many voices on, let's say this side, let's just say. And then suddenly I noticed he mentioned it on Rogan and and he just was kind of very dismissive. And then he just came out as if with this, here's the proof. And I, I I was just wondering what your reaction to it was. It kind of bothered Trump.
0: me. So so yeah. I find it superficial, lazy. He's clearly not an expert. Like all I've done for a year is immerse myself. Like I could literally sit here for three hours and cite trials. I could cite yeah. health ministry programs. I could do anything you want with the data, you know. And here he is, tweeting about one study, not knowing anything. Okay, Actually, I think well, it, let's not good. even
1: let's not even give him a second more. But, so but, that. But the other problem, yeah. Frank,
0: is. And this is another problem with a lot of this stuff around vaccines or Mm -hmm. is that people publicly come out with an opinion on something that's negative. They're going to use data that supports that and they're going to ignore data that goes against that. And it's very hard to publicly walk back. Like if you've been telling people for months that ivermectin doesn't work and there's nothing to it.
1: You're never going to. And
0: now you're going to, you got to walk that back. And by the way, two weeks before that trial, a massive trial out of Brazil showed results that are almost indescribable how powerful they were yeah it, did that one get attention crickets crickets
1: oh i tell you, I'm going to hit you with i I spent two hours with Gert van yeah, in last sure. week, and uh his was kind of stark and I, in a way, I kind of were so i know we, um. You have to go. But in a way, what he said was kind of stark. And he he basically said he feels there could be another round of this. And this next version of it would be um, as infectious, as infectious, but way more virulent. And uh, and I he, he didn't really want to say it. He was kind of and I was kind of he was a little bit. He said, I'm a little bit too. I'm a bit afraid to kind of tell you what I really think. And I, I, then I kind of went, uh, do you know what? if this gets anywhere it's going to be shut down by youtube this so just tell me because the people are so what he said was he uh, 90% sure and he was being conservative about this he said if you basically watch the line of the cases they're never going to reach an end they're going to come back and and he said i'm calling for a 6 week prophylactic antiviral treatment and really i suppose um i kind of want to talk to you about that because you know I, I don't know if this this piece of information, I don't know for definite if it's true, but here's a man. He's independent. He's highly qualified. He's at the end. He's tired almost. And, and you're you can, I can sense your tiredness also, you know, and he's kind of go because he said, I'm calling for this for the governments to do something. And I said, you know, that's never going to happen, though. Never gonna and, and he goes, that's going to break. And, and then I said, well, maybe can you tell people? And he goes, and then people are going to do it wrong if they try and do it. Right. But I wonder, you know, for the pe- for, for well, some people who may be at risk to know well, about be, the yeah. six-week I'll, treatment. I can and,
0: make a few comments. So, yeah, please. Number one, on the likelihood or probability of a more virulent variant or more transmissible or another surge, um, I defer to gear. Okay. Um, part of me hopes that Omicron gives us natural immunity from subsequent ones or the subsequent ones will be milder. he He would be the expert on that. So let's just assume he's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, if he's wrong, then maybe we don't have to worry about it. but let's just assume he's correct. He's long called for like the only real solution is really mass antiviral treatment. Andor or prophylaxis. And going back to the paper that I told you, you got to retracted, the conclusion of my paper based on everything, and I looked at a dozen pro- prevention trials, which were astoundingly positive, as well as the more recent one that came out of Brazil recently, there's 160,000 patients, and it was a massive reduction in mortality, hospitalization, and illness if you stayed on ivermectin twice a month. And, and in that city, their mortality rate for all cases went from 6% to 1.2% in a six month period. And so we know it works at preventative. It would greatly mitigate need for hospitalization and death, especially in the more severely ill, you know, comorbidity wise, um, that it's, it's the critical missing piece to this pandemic strategy. So if you go back to my paper, I literally wrote in my paper that Ivermectin should be globally and systematically deployed in the prevention and treatment of Mm COVID-19. I stand by that conclusion then, I more than stand by it now. In fact, I have even more data to show that that's true. Um, And so yes, Geert is saying the right thing to do, but your answer is equally correct. It's just not gonna happen. You wanna give a horse dewormer to the world? Right. I mean, it's like right, we're going back to the same stuff we've been talking about. Yeah. Like, I mean, they're, they're still captured. Now, I think a lot of truth is coming out about the fraud and propaganda and censorship. I think that story is breaking. Um, you know, what they're finding out about what's been suppressed around vaccines, the ivermectin story, um, I think I'm hoping in the future that people will recognize that that was a fraud too. I mean, not ivermectin was a fraud. But the campaign waged against it was, you know, fraudulently mm-hmm. conducted. And so I, I don't know. I agree with him, but and I love that he still wants to call for it. I mean, nobody in power is listening to gear. The only people who listen to gear are those who are critical thinkers and open minded who trust scientists that are independent, data driven, right? And mm-hmm. at great personal sacrifice, you yeah. know, the same things we talked about earlier, and is willing to openly debate. He has all of those check marks, but who's listening to gear who are in power? Uh,
1: yeah. And they're not. And, um, and his, uh, his last kind of sense was that if it strikes, you see, it does sound for most people, they're just going to go, people here in this country, because all the mandates have dropped, are kind of going, it's over now. I don't want to, I don't even hear anything about it, but his kind of view was that if it strikes it'll just be, it'll be way too quick. And he, and he says, he feels ivermectin would be the right thing, but he can't be sure either. Yeah. Because if, if it no, is, you can't. The, thing
0: about, and, the thing about ivermectin it has so many mechanisms that we don't think there'll be resistance to it. Um, Cause it has so many overlapping mechanisms. It, it really is a wonder drug in that, in that sense is that, the mechanisms and the safety are, I mean, it has so many therapeutic mechanisms and it's one of the world's safest drugs. It's like, mm-hmm. it's very hard to package a drug that has that safety profile and so many different mechanisms. Cause you'd think one of the mechanisms would be injurious, right? Yeah. But it literally has like this panoply of mechanisms, which are not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I, I think it's the right drug. Um, you know, what troubles me is the speed at which he thinks is going to occur. Cause I would say maybe like I wouldn't say everyone should be prophylaxing now, but if we start to see the outbreak of a variant somewhere, um, and we we tend to hear these things pretty quickly, you know, I would say then, you know, I'd probably go back on profile prophy- If it was breaking through natural immunity um, that a lot of the world has gained, um, I'm naturally immune. You're naturally immune. Yeah. I, I I would probably, I would. I would probably start prophylaxis. You know, we have our protocol on our website, flccc.net. That's what I was going to um, ask. It's
1: there. It's, it's yeah, it's there on your website, how to. Yeah.
0: And, yeah. you know, for Delta, it had such high viral loads that we went, we moved empirically to twice a week. We don't have trials saying twice a week, but we did twice a week because we were getting breakthroughs on once a week. I kind
1: of noticed, I wondered, yeah, because when I saw it first, I saw 0.2, and then I, right. and then, somebody close to me got it and I went looking and I think it was at 0.4 and that's what I was curious about that
0: two things because there's a few protocols so for chronic prevention instead of we had it as 0.2 once a week instead of going to 0.4 once a week we went 0.2 twice a week okay it's a long-acting drug we thought that's probably better but for treatment with delta we went from 0.2 to 0.4 as the standard dose
1: treatment yeah Uh, okay yeah
0: I mean and that's the other thing that Andy Hill discovered is that this has a dose response relationship. The yeah. higher the dose, the faster the virus clears and the better people do. And yeah. so some of the most profound trials are the higher dose trials. And, and we saw that repeatedly along the collection of trials. Can so- I can ask
1: you, I, I just looked and I went, I wondered, was there sort of a conservativeness about the recommendations? You knew how good it was. And then you looked at it and went, okay, well, it will work with this. And we're not going to put higher. Is, was there any, was that, was is that the way you'd err or how? No,
0: to... the 0.2 initially, when I was treating alpha uh, or the first variants, like I was doing fine on 0.2. I mean, the patients that were treating yeah. were re- responding robustly.
1: Yes. Um,
0: yeah. Delta was much more difficult to treat, like they weren't responding as robustly, but when you increased the dose, they were. And so mm-hmm. it was like not only we knew it had a dose response, but we felt it needed a dose. It was it was just simply like the data was evolving and our clinical experiences were evolving. And so we're just doctoring, Frank. It's
1: just oh dark. man yeah <laughs> um, so i don't want to keep you maybe we will have a part two and maybe we'll go you know, deep we we'll go chat. into the rabbit hole um yeah let's yeah, we this... can go yeah in let's hole go you want let's go it. dark into the rabbit hole yeah we bring lights and guns yeah oh man listen um i really want to say um i don't know if you hear it often enough but I really want to say thank you so much for being there, being who you are. Um, there's an awful lot of people who really, really appreciate uh, Dr. Jessica Rose. I, when I did a podcast with her, she was talking about you and she was just going, I want to go out and have some beers with, with she's, that dude. <laughs>
0: she's my sister, man. We were just yeah. yelling at each other on the phone this morning. Cause she posted some of her stuff. stuff which I thought was revolutionary. And she had texted me this morning because she wanted to know more about this Andy Hilton. That's just breaking. And so, uh, we oh, So every time we talk, we are laughing continuously. Yeah, okay, Not a lot yeah. to laugh at, but when I talk no. to Jessica, we, we laugh. She's yeah, crazy. I got
1: that vibe. All right. That's for sure. She's yeah, yeah, very cool. Well, All thanks
0: right. for the sentiments, Frank, man. Yeah. You, like you said, you and I could do this for hours. I just don't have hours. Today, no, you don't. No, you have better things to be doing. So that's good.
1: All right. Listen, thank you so much. Take it easy. Thanks, Frank, next See time. You. Yeah. Right. See you.